Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty broadcast slash podcast. We live in such interesting times, and they're getting interestinger by the day, if I may coin a word there. Um, you know, I do my best. I really try. I, I know it doesn't sound like it, especially if you only hear me during these, this two hours of the day, or you only catch my commentary, you know, then you're going to think, well, he must live and breathe politics. But the truth is, I try to minimize political stuff as much as possible in my life. And it's it's not because I know better than you and I'm just that good or I'm just that pure. I'm happier when I'm not consumed with what party A is doing to party B or this politician saying about that politician. It all comes down to a struggle for power. And some power grabs are a little more obvious than others. Greta Thunberg, I'm looking your position, your uh, your direction here. You know, the, the tears were a nice touch, but you're still a prop in the hands of powerful people who want more power. And I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. But this impeachment thing, holy cow. I know a lot of people are talking about it. And, you know, look, my memory is still pretty clear about uh, when Bill Clinton was impeached back in 1998. And it was a big deal in the sense that uh, I think I I think there was legitimate concern that uh, you had a president who was not um, was not trustworthy. And I mean that from the standpoint of, hey, if he would if he would deceive his wife, if he would violate his vows to his wife, he would certainly violate his oath of office or lie to his country. If he'd lie to his wife, he'd lie to his country. But on the heels of the, uh, what is it, three-year now witch hunt to try to, to get Trump out of there, or at least prove that he wasn't really elected, you know. Um, I have to admit, it looks like they're really going to do it. The Democrats are actually preparing to begin impeachment proceedings. And I'm less concerned with, you know, well, what's the political outcome going to be? And a little more concerned with what the heck are they trying to create here? Do you want a constitutional crisis? Because that's how you get a constitutional crisis. Now, I, again, I limit my intake of politics just because it's it's better for my peace of mind. But I've tried to, to get my mind around, OK, so what exactly is is up with this this claim? Well, you know, Trump, uh, he was playing dirty with the president of Ukraine, uh, something involving Joe Biden's son. Here's what I understand. Hunter Biden, who is Joe Biden's son, received $600,000 to be on the board of directors of an oil company in the Ukraine, even though he doesn't know anything about oil or resources or anything. Well, it just so happens that Joe Biden, his daddy, was President Obama's point man on on the Ukraine. In other words, they were buying influence. And the Ukraine government thought, well, okay, that's not right. With other stuff going on with the company, money laundering, and I I think there may have been some bribes involved. A prosecutor in Ukraine was looking into it. And Joe Biden threatened to withhold a billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine unless the prosecutor was fired and the investigation dropped. And by the way, he brags about this on video. I watched the video this morning. 
But with a newer government in the Ukraine and Trump in the White House, the Ukraine government still wants to look into that company. They're still investigating. And the U.S. is planning on giving $400 million in aid to Ukraine, but they had it on hold until some of these bribery and corruption issues or accusations were dealt with. So apparently in a call between Trump and the president of the Ukraine, the corruption issue was asked about. And I don't know what the exact wording was. I guess we're going to get a transcript maybe sometime today. But the gist of it was Trump saying something to the effect of don't let U.S. political issues stop you from investigating corruption. Well, apparently some someone heard about the call. They didn't actually hear the call. They just heard about it. And without having any firsthand knowledge of what was said, filed a whistleblower complaint claiming Trump threatened to withhold $400 million unless the Ukrainians went after Hunter Biden. I believe that is at the gist of, of this complaint that has sparked this uh, impeachment inquiry into President Trump. I mean, it's it's been figured out, or at least I believe it's it's been shown that the complainer was not a person in a position to know what was said on the call, and the complaint was politically motivated. But hey, when you're trying to take down the guy who should not be president, then I guess, uh, you know, that's just a minor technicality. So they're going to release a full transcript of the call sometime today. Keep in mind, the president of the Ukraine has publicly said he had no problem with anything Trump said on the call. There was no threat. And apparently they're trying to release all the info on the whistleblower complaint by the end of this week. Now, the Democrats are claiming Trump is bullying the Ukraine government to go after Hunter Biden in order to hamper Joe Biden's presidential bid because all of his uh, missteps, his gaffes, his eye filling with blood as he's participating in the town hall. Yeah, that's not going to interfere with his bid at all. I mean, other than that, Joe's right as rain. But the Democrats are saying that Trump's conversation with the president of the Ukraine was an unconstitutional abuse of power and unlawful. That's this week's excuse for impeachment. Now, I just want to remind you, and I, I have to point this out. I'm sorry I have to offer this disclaimer. I'm not standing up for Trump here. I'm not trying to tell you, hey, man, back off my president. Because I don't consider myself a Trump supporter. Having said that, though, let's at least try to keep a few things in mind, whether you are strongly for Trump or you're strongly against Trump. Without a House vote to authorize, the Democrats' impeachment is just simply an illusion of impeachment. It's, it's impe- impeachment light, same great taste, just less filling. Because they know that illusion is more beneficial than the actual, you know, we're going to get him out of there. Which, by the way, I don't think they're going to, but, you know, it could happen. It's within the, the realm of possibilities, but I don't, I don't think that it's going to happen. But putting him through the process, the Democrats think, will serve their purposes because, A, they never have to reach a conclusion. B, there aren't really rules to the process as far as uh, there's no timetable. It's an informal process that can go on as long as they want it to. Let's see, where am I? See, <laughs> you know, the Democrats are going to constantly be leaking to the media to help keep speculation and rumor and innuendo alive 
And, of course, if they lose their bid to find anything impeachable, they can always just walk away then at that point and say, as they do with examples of socialism, well, that wasn't real impeachment, just like that wasn't real socialism. But if the opportunity is put before them to vote to impeach and... I don't know. Trump may be the kind of guy he may have the confidence. He may actually force their hand. Because if they have to vote to impeach, that's the all in moment. That's when the Democrats are going to have to push all their chips to the center of the table. uh, But they don't have the cards. So they're hoping, well, maybe we'll draw an inside straight just by acting like we're impeaching without really doing it. And I have to believe at some level it's because they're thinking, well, the process is really the punishment. The biggest difference between these impeachment, this impeachment inquiry and whatever it leads to and the uh, Mueller fishing expedition is that uh, the Democrats aren't going to have a cutout to do their dirty work for them. There can't there won't be any degrees of separation between Democratic leadership and the people who actually have to get their hands dirty. The Democrats are going to have to get their hands dirty, which means I would not be surprised to see the GOP force them into a formal impeachment process. And that's something that I think will actually play in Trump's favor. I think putting him through that means that the 2020 election is basically going to be a referendum on to impeach or not. And I think if you put that to the American people, I know we're pretty evenly divided, but I I would probably put my money on Trump to come out the victor in that case. And I'm going to throw some faint praise his way anyway. Just uh, again, I'm not a Trump supporter, but um, there are times when the guy absolutely shines. And I've only seen a few lines from his speech to the United Nations uh, earlier this week. It was such a nice counterpoint to uh, Greta Thunberg's, you know, hysteria and histrionics. But I honestly don't think I've heard a president speak the kind of words that Trump was speaking since, well, since Ronald Reagan. That doesn't mean that, therefore, I will now carry Trump's water from this day forward, and he is the answer to all of my prayers, and I'm going to start ending my prayers in his name. I'm not. But I want the record to show. For whatever, for whatever character flaws, for whatever failings Trump may have, he is certainly not the monster that we were told he would be incessantly by the media and Democratic politicians leading up to his election. And the way they're behaving... I kind of want to see him win just to spite them. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is my number if you'd like to join the conversation. All right, I feel like I got the political stuff out of my system. I'm feeling okay. Checking the bottom of my shoes. Did I step in any? Nope. I think I'm good. All right, we're going to move on here. Well, kind of. <laughs> I want to I want to go back to uh, the whole climate change thing. And I look, I have to I have to just sit back for a minute and kind of marvel uh, because I have met a number of people who are not politicians. They're just people or, you know, average citizens. Okay. Some media personalities included. But just, you know, normal folks, nobody in power, who nonetheless are absolutely consumed with the idea 
that we are in this crisis. It's an existential crisis. The earth, the climate is being destroyed. And if we don't do something, which by which they mean, if we don't allow the government to take more of our money and, and assume greater power and control over us, well, huh, huh, we're all going to die. And I saw a great article from uh, National Review. This is by Jim Garagdi. Garrity. I hope I'm saying his name right. Just skip the doomsday predictions, guys. <laughs> and he's got a good point here because it's been going on for a long time. Apparently, the guys over at the Competitive Enterprise Institute have actually put together this big stack of predictions of environmental doom from the past five decades. Yeah, I know. We've, we've got less than 12 years. But, hey, for five decades, at least this has been going on. And this would include things like Paul Ehrlich's predictions of a global famine by 1975, new ice ages coming fast. By the way, that's what they were trying to scare us with when I was in grade school. We were concerned about the coming ice age. Then we have rising seas, obliterating nations by the year 2000, children forgetting what snow is, an ice-free Arctic. And, of course, uh, U.K. Prime Minister Gordon Brown's 2009 declaration that the planet had less than 90 days to prevent catastrophe and so on. This is nothing new. Okay, Greta Thunberg is just the latest face of a very long term ploy to grab more power. I'm not going to use the term socialist, even though a lot of people would. Um, I think that uh, socialist ideology is at the root of many of the environmental policies. But at the bottom of it is a collectivist, anti-human dynamic. Humans are the problem. And the only way that we, notice there's the collectivism, can fix this problem is for us, all of us, for society, more collectivism, to shed some of the conveniences and some of the, you know, accoutrements of, of civilization, refrigeration or, you know, use of energy, eating meat. I, I don't know. Got to reduce those those greenhouse gases. We got to stop fossil fuels. Now, you do understand I'm not advocating. No, come on, guys. Come join me. I'm going to go burn some tires. You want to join in? You got any old tires you want to get rid of? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that people in power have been spewing this for a long time. And they may be sincere. But it's a religious-like experience for many of them. I think back uh, just a few months ago, I had a chance to uh, to do an audition on, on KSL Radio. And, and the host with whom I was auditioning, a uh, brilliant guy, very smart, very uh, educated. But absolutely, 100% bought in. To this environmental thing. I mean, to the point where, you know, to even bring it up, he was just, oh, my gosh, I can't believe people don't even believe. The, and just, you know, the 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 contempt was of, of, of a, it was on a par with with what you saw from little Miss, uh, you know, Braids, Greta Thunberg. Couldn't believe that anybody would doubt that. And I'm just like, sorry, but it's the solution that makes me a skeptic. Because the solution just happens to be. Um, something that doesn't work out so well in my favor. It works out great in the favor of those who are in power. And, of course, the scientists who are on their payroll. Yeah, that's great. They got job security. Sure. Yeah, we're going to save the planet, in quotation marks. 
but I don't want them to have more of my money. I don't want them to have more decision-making ability over every aspect of my life. And so I doubt. I don't doubt that there are changes taking place. I just doubt whether, first of all, human beings are really the cause of it. And secondly, if laws and taxes alone are going to be enough to change. If we can just restructure the whole world economy, why we can change the environment. Yeah, good luck with that. Now, don't forget, back in 2007, Al Gore accepted the Nobel Peace Prize. Do you remember this? And at that time, he warned the complete melting of the polar caps could happen in as little as seven years. Well, 2014 was five years ago. There's actually more ice on the polar ice caps than there were before. In fact, some of the activists who were traveling to some of the uh, the polar ice caps to show how, look how they're diminishing. Look, look how, how, how little there is. No, they've had to be rescued now a couple of different times. Why? Because they're stuck in the ice. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't know how you explain that. It's, there's, there's so little ice that they're, they're actually getting trapped in it. So while a lot of people remain worried about the rate of the ice cap melt, and it is on a gradual downward slope, it still had its 1.6 million miles of frozen ice tying all-time low measurements in, 20, in 2007 and 2016. Some of the Arctic water will refreeze through the fall and winter. And, and from this article from the National Review, this again from Jim Gergity, he says, I have another to toss on the pile. The late climate scientist John Fuhrer was highly regarded in his field. Back in 2002, he wrote The Crowded Greenhouse. And he described a world that took climate change seriously after its effects became near apocalyptic at the end of the first decade of the 21st century. So in the the years 2010 and 2011, a sudden acceleration of global warming and the natural variability of the climate combined to produce a year with no winter in the United States. Oh, I can hear the people crying about that right now. In summer, 60 days exceeded 90 days throughout the exceeded. How does this work? 60 days exceeded 90 days throughout the country and Washington, D.C. saw 30 days with temperatures over 100 degrees. I think they mean 90 degrees, 60 days exceeded 90 degrees and Washington, D.C. saw 30 days with temperatures over 100 degrees, all while Congress was in session. Serious droughts occurred in the Midwestern and Western United States. The U.S. wheat crop was small. The corn crop failed completely. The Mississippi River dried up. The Colorado River had dwindled to a trickle years before. Despite policies designed to maintain some flow to Mexico. Now, remember, this is this is the crowded greenhouse. And this is a quote from John Fuhrer. Well, in reality, global surface temperatures for 2010 tied for the warmest year on record, but the only mass extinction seen that year was among House Democrats. And the point is not that Fuhrer didn't know what he was talking about. It's just he, like many other people trying to persuade the public about climate change, chose to portray the consequences in what he feared of what he feared in as nightmarish a way as possible. So to communicate the urgency, he picked a date just eight years after his book's publication for Environmental Doomsday to arrive. And of course, reality unfolded nowhere nearly as direly as he envisioned. Now, climate change activists will insist this sort of dramatic license is necessary to stir a naturally apathetic public. That's why you saw the theatrics from young Miss Thunberg. 
But as this article points out, the metronomic regularity of doomsday predictions like these are a part of why the public is so apathetic. I mean, it's the little boy who cried wolf. We've heard it all before. And yet life somehow went on. The people hearing the latest predictions of underwater coastal cities may remember the panic over Y2K. Predictions about the Mayan calendar predicting the end of the world in 2012. How about Pat Robertson predicting the end of the world in 1982 and so on? I guess the thing is, if you want to be taken seriously, don't be the guy on the corner holding up the end is near sign. Or like the loons blocking traffic in Washington, D.C. to see bigger fights over water rights in western states. Credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and you may call in at 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. If you're catching the podcast, well, a call is not going to be an option, but uh, thanks anyway for joining in and please feel free to uh, pass us along to your friends let other people know that uh, they too can enjoy not just this show but all of the programs here on the loving liberty radio network you can hear great personalities like beth ann schoenberg on csc talk radio and cl bryant preaching the gospel of liberty the joe carey show uh let's see today is wednesday so actually we have the legal show followed by remember me with uh, the attorneys from intervivos and, uh, oh, I guess I'll be back on the air this afternoon at 1. Actually, I have a special guest joining me. It's going to be a great conversation. I hope you'll tune in for it. Then it's the Kate Daly Show, and it's Liberty Roundtable with Sam Bushman. One of the most uh, information-packed and principle-based shows you are ever going to hear. I don't know how Sam does it, but he does it, and it's amazing. Probably should mention, too, that Ammo.com is one of our sponsors of the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And so I'd like to encourage you, if uh, if you are a shooter, you know somebody who's a shooter, and you understand that uh, Ammo's a pretty good way to spend money. You know, it's, you're not, it's not going to lose value. You can always turn around and sell it. If it's not something you can use, you can barter it if you have to. But go to Ammo.com, check them out. Great selection, including bulk ammo, if you want to buy it that way. That's usually the cheapest. Plus... They'll donate 1% of your purchase to help freedom-oriented organizations like Loving Liberty. And you can actually choose from a little drop-down menu when you go to checkout. So, there you go. All right, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit because I feel like I've, uh, I've been getting some stuff off my chest here. And it's, it's wonderful from the standpoint of, okay, it feels good to unburden myself. But I worry that I'm complaining a little bit too much. So, I want to take this in a little bit brighter direction. And thank you to Jeff Minnick at uh, intellectualtakeout.org for his excellent essay, Winning the Lottery Every Day. And I just want you to consider what he has to say here. And tell me that this couldn't benefit any one of us. He says, it's mid-September, and I'm privileged to spend five nights at a beach house on the Outer Banks of North Carolina at the invitation of a long friend, or a longtime friend, John. Two of John's other friends, Susan and Franklin, are also there. He says, the weather so far has brought ocean breezes, blue skies, moderate temperatures, 
and the house is only two blocks from the water's edge, surrounded by live oak trees and the usual collection of smaller scruffy plants found near the ocean in this area. He says the interior sports all the modern amenities, an ice maker in the refrigerator, a microwave, a gas fireplace, and more, and is decorated with seashells, paintings, and unusual furniture. Now, the owner's wine bottles, for example, sit on a rack in a painted canoe, cut in half, and standing erect. He says the shower in my bathroom measures five feet by five feet. It sports two shower heads. Behind the house is a swimming pool replete with palm trees and a covered porch. Now, his point here is that the lap of luxury doesn't begin to describe this home, which opens its arms to visitors, embraces them, and encourages them to cast aside their worries. So at one point, he's sitting there in Franklin, one of the guests, and he were talking about the subject of the lottery. Franklin says, friends are always telling me I should play the lottery. And he says, Franklin, like him, is a man of modest means. When they say, Franklin, you could win $63 million. At which point, Jeff Minnick asked him, well, what do you say? And Franklin says, I tell them I already won the lottery. I was born in the United States of America in the middle of the 20th century. I want to let that sink in for just a moment. Because chances are, if you're listening to this, you probably fall pretty close to that uh, description of where and when you were born as well. If you were born in the United States in the middle of the 20th century... You've already won life's lottery in so many ways. And as Jeff Minnick points out, that's a guy who understands the meaning of gratitude. As Franklin later points out, he says, the average American in 2019 lives better than royalty just a century ago. Now, these are things we take for granted, but we seldom think about. But I'm going to ask you, think about this for just a moment. Our homes are climate controlled. We travel by car and by plane. Our medical care is superb. We go to the supermarket and we select food from around the world. We communicate via the Internet and cell phones. We possess at our fingertips more venues for news and entertainment than we can possibly absorb. And on top of that, we also have vast opportunities for education and bettering ourselves. Even the poor in America fare better than many in the rest of the world. In a piece for Forbes, Tim Warstall addresses the gulf between rich and poor Americans, but then demonstrates that Americans living below the poverty line are still richer than 70% of all the other people in existence. And what's our response to these incredible gifts? Well, too often it's resentment, greed, ingratitude, or worse, envy. Some of us resent those who have more money or possessions, or we, we rent a mobile home while a family a mile away lives in a mansion. We look across the valley of that chateau and we despise them for their wealth. Now, we fail to consider they pay more in taxes every year than we earn, or that they gave employment to a construction crew for months, or that they may have invested their time, talent, and money simply more wisely than we did. Jeff Minnick says, you know, I felt that resentment toward others for a few years in my early 30s. But he says it was an ugly foolishness, which I eventually ab abandoned. But I think he's dialed into something here. We are greedy for more, more, more. We own a Honda, but I really want a BMW. We own a three-bedroom house, perfectly adequate to our needs, but I want five bedrooms. And he says, worst of all is our ingratitude. 
we have liberties that would have astounded a slave in ancient Rome or a serf in medieval England or a black woman in the American South in the 1950s. He says, we have wealth and advantages beyond the ken of our grandparents. Best of all, we are alive, whirling about the sun on a planet that nourishes, uh, nourishes us, surrounded by our fellow human beings whose talents and intelligence bring us amazing advancements in such areas as medicine and technology. But he says many of us indulge in a daily litany of complaints about our lives. We moan about our health care, our housing, our jobs, our missed, our missed chances, our lack of money. And he says, perhaps these complaints are just part of our nature, but given our abundance of wealth and the comparative discomforts of the generations which preceded us, these complaints should also embarrass us. Jeff Minnick says, my time at this beach house where stress and obligation have drained away, where the pace is slow, have reminded me to be grateful for being part of the human parade, for a beating heart, for a chance to soak in the beauty around me. And he says, some debts can never be repaid. For him, being alive in America in 2019 is one of those things. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who really needed to hear this. It's possible. I'm sharing it with you just on the off chance that there is someone out there, maybe one person, and it could be me, that, uh, that needs to hear this positive take on, look, just how good we have it. I can't remember where I was reading this. Just a, It was within the last year. But someone had gone back and was reading some of the, the journals and some of the letters um, of, of their direct ancestors. And one of the things they pointed out was that one thing that uh, folks had to live with a lot in the old times. You ready for this? Pain. People who had a bad tooth or, you know, who had an injury or a back problem or something like that, um, you know, even, you know, fall out from a disease because, of course, there weren't antibiotics for a long time. They just had to live with it. You just had to suck it up. And that was one of the things that they had to deal with on a day to day basis. There was another thing that they brought cold. And also hunger. These were regular experiences for people, not just the poor, not just the downcast, but Normal people would have times where they had to live through periods of pain or suffering or times of uh, deprivation where they may not have had quite enough food, but still they persevered. Now, keep in mind, I'm doing this broadcast from my home in Utah. And there's a lot of uh, homage given to the, the pioneers who traveled across the prairie and came and settled this part of the American West. We do spend a fair amount of time, too, talking about uh, the, the suffering, you know, the diseases that killed them, the, the trauma of having to bury a child along the trail as, as they went along. And they definitely paid a price. But I think the bigger point is they did it. And that's followed by the question, why would they do something like that? Why would you subject yourself to knowing that there's a possibility we may die, we may starve to death, we may freeze, we might be killed by hostile Indians, we may, you know, break a leg and die of an infection. You don't know. 
They did it because they were seeking something better, not just for themselves, but for those who would follow them. That's us. I submit to you that maybe we should adopt that attitude once in a while. What are we doing for the generations that will follow us? Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. All right, we're going to venture into the swamp of political correctness for just a moment. (sighs) Okay, here's a name that you're going to be hearing a little bit more about. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Carson King, but uh, Carson King is a young man who has helped raise more than a million dollars for the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital. And apparently uh, he had... A controversial tweet of his from 2011, so that would have been eight years ago when he was 16, that was uh, discovered by a reporter for the Des Moines Register, which first called attention to the tweet referencing a racially charged segment on the television show Tosh.0. And this guy's apologizing like crazy. I mean, he is just, oh man, this this is so sad. But they're treating him like he's an actual enemy of the people. Because of his hurtful and embarrassing tweets. Look. We are setting ourselves up for the worst kind of dictatorship. And I mean an an ideological, a psychological dictatorship. When we get to where we, we want to sort out anything anybody might have ever said anywhere within the public domain that could be construed as insensitive. Now, this is not just my guilty conscience saying, hey, Brian, you've said a lot of things people might not uh, find uh, sufficiently sensitive, but he was 16 years old at the time. And apparently he's done a lot of good since that time. My question is why? What purpose does it serve? Now, in his current position, if he was making publicly these insensitive statements, that would be one thing because it could reflect badly on, uh, you know, who he works for. It could be it could reflect badly even on the charitable causes he supports. But that's not what happened. Somebody got to digging and went, well, I see that you used, uh, you know, a, a very insensitive term in this when you were 16 years old. So how long does a person need to uh, pay For the sin of being not yet a fully formed adult. With, uh, you know, reasoning and responsibility and even a modicum of uh, maturity thrown in there. I suspect that the answer is there is no forgiveness. Worlds without end. You can't. (laughs) You can never be forgiven if you said something that was insensitive. And this kind of sensitivity is just uh, it's it's an ideological bludgeon. To beat people into submission. To put them in their place. You can't speak. You can't. Don't even look at us. You keep your eyes averted and look at the ground. See, it's stuff like this that makes me grateful. Um, Not so much for, you know, politicians who will fight political correctness. I don't really care for politicians that much. But people like uh, comedian Dave Chappelle. Who are willing to speak up and 
say some pretty insensitive things. But in the right context, let me give you some background on this. George Luke, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. Actually, I think this was originally published. uh, Nope, this was one he wrote for Intellectual Takeout. Uh, Wrote about Dave Chappelle and the public thirst for his Sticks and Stones Netflix special. Which uh, he tells us, uh, not Dave Chappelle, but George Luke tells us, will likely hurt your feelings. (laughs) Because uh, Dave Chappelle defends Louis C.K.'s questionable home practices. He was accused of, you know, sexual, um, uh, what was it? I don't want to say assault, but behaving inappropriately, really inappropriately at home. He describes Kevin Hart as being four tweets shy of being perfect. (laughs) Chappelle takes 65 minutes to launch stones through the window of PC culture right onto the heads of his audience. And the PC windows that he chooses to break... Run the gamut. He argues that if women have a right to choose murder, then men have a right to choose whether they'll pay child support. He critiques the internal inconsistency of LGBTQ ethics and takes an takes a aim at the inconsistency of sexual determination in today's society. He also touches on pedophilia, expressing disbelief at Michael Jackson's alleged escapades. Now, sexuality isn't the only thing that Chappelle's poking fun at, though. Raising the opioid crisis, he notes that America's apathy or suburban America's apathy toward it is a real thing. And then he compares it with the apathy for the crack epidemic. He points out the tension of seeing mass shootings as either a gun access or a personal mental health uh, problem. But there's a deeper issue at play here, and this is the one that Chappelle points out. And that is our society has this general readiness to take offense. Through comments about the sensitivity of the alphabet people or our speed in endorsing Josie Smollett's account of racial violence, the complications in using the N-word, and even our culture's tendency to shut down things we don't like, it's easy to see that Chappelle makes a good point about our problems. Maybe that's why 99% of viewers are responding favorably to Chappelle, despite his rather un-PC jokes and pokes at celebrities. But here's the bigger question that remains. Why are we so easily offended and yet so quick to defend our own freedom from moral obligation? Well, there's a quote here from uh, cultural commentator Russell Kirk. This is from the Roots of American Order. Russell Kirk said, at the heart of every culture is a body of ethics, of distinctions between good and evil. And in the beginning, at least, those distinctions are based upon the authority of a revealed of revealed religion. Not until people have come to share religious belief are they able to work together satisfactorily or even to make sense of the world in which they find themselves. Thus, all order, even the ideological order of professing atheism, could not have come into existence had it not grown out of general belief in truths that are perceived by the moral imagination. What an excellent quote. So if cultures are built on a body of shared ethics, what happens when we don't know which morals matter? As Dave Chappelle says to his audience, I can't live in this world you're creating. And perhaps Chappelle resonates with the American public because he's a fellow witness to this same insufficient moral order. We're stuck between a populist disdain for elites telling us what we ought to believe and a private longing to taste the fruits of a common morality. 
George Luke asks the question, is Chappelle exposing our hunger for a moral bread more filling than the stones breaking the teeth of current moral frameworks? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. This much I do know. At all times and in all places, truth matters. And that means the ability to speak the truth. To not uh, walk in fear that if I say something that's true, but uh, people may find disagreeable, you know, I'm going to have to be a pariah. I think that's where we are today. You can't, you can't find acceptance among the in crowd, if you will, without altering your point of view to whatever truths, and I'm putting those in quotation marks, they say are the only truths that you can talk about. Again, Tom Woods, one of my favorite economists and historians, uh, talks about the uh, three by five index card of allowable opinion. And this is unfortunately where a lot of us find ourselves today. Average people, commentators, you know, political figures, actors, actresses, performers, and so forth. You have to be so careful with what you say and apparently what you tweet. Because someone is waiting somewhere to take offense. And you're not going to win in that situation. When someone's looking for a reason to be offended, trust me, they're going to find it. You can be as accommodating and loving and meek and humble as you want. It doesn't matter if their goal is to assume some kind of control over you, especially if weaponized guilt is one of their favorite tools. They're going to find a reason to be offended. Now, that doesn't mean and I'm not trying to make an excuse for therefore throw caution to the wind and just tell everybody how the cow ate the cabbage. You know, you see a person who's overweight, you tell them you're fat. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm suggesting, though, is know the truth, speak the truth, even if your voice shakes, and don't give the credibility or the stature to the people, the enforcers of what is allowable and what isn't. I think we all have a coming collision with this mentality, and it's most likely going to be over something inane. Like the 63 made-up pronouns that you and I are supposed to know, but but that are constantly changing. You can't know. And that's the point. You can't know if you are actually in the right or not. So you walk around in a constant state of fear and uncertainty, which is exactly how people with a controlling nature would like you to be. Don't give them the satisfaction. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.